Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Mold, a podcast from the National Precast Concrete Association. Today, we will be talking about the right time to invest in your plant. I'm Joe Frollo, the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at NPCA. We'll kick things off with me talking with NPCA board member and Lock Solutions President Asher Kasman. Later on, we'll go to Engineer's Corner to hear from NPCA's Claude Gauguin and Bert Eitz of Old Castle Infrastructure. Let's get started. Hey, Asher, how's things going today in uh, sunny Houston? Things are good. They're very, uh, it's, it's warm right now where we are, but things are good. Good. Hey, thanks for talking to us today. We're going to talk a little bit about equipment and investment and how people can manage the the, the balance between the two. And uh, just to start off, do you have a general strategy with Locke or, or personally about when it comes to investing in new equipment or upgrading your equipment or looking at, at something new? Do you, do you just have any initial thoughts on the topic? Yeah, you know, the, we're about 10 years old. We've gone through several phases of, of growing up as a company. And, you know, initially, a lot of our, our decisions, especially on equipment, they were kind of, you know, gut feelings and off the cuff. Uh, decisions, you know, there, there's certain things that come across that you know make sense. You don't need a, to do an analysis to prove it to yourself. And so we, we went through a phase like that for a while. And, you know, as we've, as we've grown up a little bit and, and some of these purchases have gotten more expensive, we do have a more structured process to decide if, if it's worth uh, the investment on certain pieces of equipment. So for us, we actually have, have built kind of a, a financial model, and we just do kind of a quick analysis to see if something's worth it. We, we plug in how much we would need to invest in something. We, we look at the assumptions on what kind of payback, what kind of savings we might get, or what kind of additional revenue we might be able to generate. You know, we, we try to look at it a little bit more analytically. Um, what I've found is even, you know, even when I know there's a, a, an investment that makes a lot of sense and I don't need to go through and do the numbers, it's a good it's a good habit. It's a good way to to prove it to myself. It's a good way to prove it to others, uh, and it's also a great way to teach others the whole process of evaluating different investments. I think right now we've actually gotten to a point where there's so there's so many different things we'd like to do. We actually run an analysis on these different options just to figure out what priority to make these investments. Um, we're still a small business, and we can't afford to to go out and buy everything that we want. So we have to have some discipline and we have to make some some good decisions. And uh, we use that kind of financial model to help us make those decisions. You mentioned Locke has been around for about a decade or so. And, and, and you know, some of our family businesses, members at NPCA, you know, even some of the smaller companies, you know, they've been around 50, 60, 70 years. They're, they're, they're using the same mixers that their dads and their grandpas did or, or a generation before. How important is it in, in the industry that we're in to, to keep an eye on modernizing? You know, you don't have to go out and buy the most expensive, the new, you know, the, the fanciest new equipment. But when things start getting 20 and 25 and 30 years old, it, you're, you're certainly going to start losing productivity. You're going to start losing some of the benefits that you'll get. It's like buying anything else new, like a new car or, you know, a new TV or something like that. There are benefits to investing like that. Right, right. Yeah. I, you know, that is one of the, the great reasons to get out to the MPCA trade show every year, because it's, it's easy to get stuck in your ways and to think you're doing it the best way you can. 
And at that trade show, that's where that's where you get to see all these new pieces of equipment and new ways of doing things. And so for me, that's a great way to try to keep up with with the technology in the industry. But there's still a lot of molds and equipment and mixers that if you if you take care, if you do good maintenance on those pieces of equipment, if you if you keep them clean, those things can last forever. Uh, I've, I've seen molds that are 30 years old that are in great condition and and they're they're as good as they were when they first started and so i i don't necessarily look at the age of of the equipment uh to determine if it's time to to replace it or not but there's certainly been a lot of advancements in technology over the last especially over the last 15 20 years i feel like um, that you can take advantage of so Again, I go back to, you look at a new piece of technology, I go back and, and do that analysis again. I look at what kind of, what kind of uh, labor efficiencies are we going to gain or, um, you know, how, how is it helping us uh, save money to determine if it's worth the investment? Being a smaller producer, I think it's okay if you don't have the best of the best equipment, especially to start off with. A lot of us started, you know, we, we started without a mixer. We started using ReadyMix. That's that's the way we started the business. And quickly, we, we got to a point where we, we were able to justify the investment in getting a mixer. And we've had the same mixer since then for about nine years now. You know, it's kind of a tough question of, of when's the right time to, to make changes. I think it depends on your equipment and just your ability, um, your, your the capital you have available uh, to grow. Yeah, I kind of look at it like a lot of us are homeowners as well. And I, I have to redo my bathrooms. I want to redo my kitchen. My wife wants to get a new fence or a new roof or something like that. You, you don't want to wait until you got to do all of it at once. You got to kind of dole it out. Like maybe we'll do the upstairs bathroom this year, the downstairs bathroom next year, because that's what fits our budget. It's the same way with, with the business. You got to think of it like that. Absolutely. I, I think I think that's a great point think if you have a maintenance plan, if you have, if you can project out when you need to upgrade certain molds and not wait until it's, until you're in a tough spot, um, that's, that's the goal. I know initially, again, we, we kind of operated just by gut feeling when we first started off and now we have more of a plan in place. Molds we want to upgrade, equipment that we know we're going to need to upgrade um, over the next couple years. So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely part of the planning process and the growth process for a, a manufacturing facility. You mentioned that mixer that you guys got that nine years ago that sort of opened up some new doors for you. What other kind of equipment have you guys invested in that's sort of been to, to reach out to a new market or maybe get you somewhere that you couldn't have gotten a few years before that? I guess for us, we always look at our mixer and our cranes as our most important pieces of equipment. And really, you know, the mixer, the value in the precast industry, in my opinion, is the technology there to get the precise mixes um, that allow you to, to have good quality SCC and, and good quality concrete. That's, that's a big difference than pouring concrete out of a ready mix truck on site. And, and engineers and specifiers, they know that. They see that, and and we've got to. Sometimes we've got to, you know, make sure they understand the quality control that we've got in our facilities with our mixers. So that's a big advantage. Clearly, there's a cost advantage of being able to to source your raw materials and, and batch concrete on demand. I think the biggest debate when people are out buying mixers is how big, how, how what what kind of volume of a mixer do they need? 
Um, and that's always a tough one. You're, you're always planning for, for growth and you're always planning to, you want to have more capacity than you need right now. That's the biggest question that I think that, that people have when they're trying to go make that kind of a purchase. And I'm not really sure what the right answer is. You got you got to kind of balance that wow factor, that cool factor. Like, you know, you know, do I need to go out and buy that $40,000 car or does a Toyota that lasts me, you know, 15 years work better for, for where I am right now? So, yeah, it's the same kind of story. Can you talk a little bit about getting new equipment or upgrading your equipment as well? Something you have to build into that is the time that goes into and the money that goes into training workers. Because if you go out and buy a new piece of equipment, if you go out and invest in something that will open a market for you, if your workers can't do it, if they can't figure it out, if they can't be efficient with it, it's it's you know not going to be worth the money. These days, a lot of our choices of, of vendors is is based on service uh, to go along with that equipment. And I think some of the best equipment manufacturers are the ones that that understand that and they build in training as part of their program, especially when you're talking about a mixer system, you know, they're getting more complex. The technology is, is more complex and we really rely on, on that manufacturer to help us, to help train our people. They're the ones that know their equipment the best. Um, and, and same thing when it comes to, to molds and uh, forklifts and cranes for us, we want, we want that the company that's going to provide the service and the, and the support that goes along with the equipment. So yeah, that we lean, we want to lean on them. And so I guess if there's the vendors that are out there listening to this, it, it is worth something. We, we appreciate it. We want it. We, we pick vendors. A lot of that is based on their service levels. In your, in your mind, do you think that new equipment drives innovation or does innovation drive the need for new equipment? How's, how's that sort of chicken and egg uh, question been there at Lock and in your experience? For us, I would say that innovation is what's driving the new equipment. I think you know we are constantly looking for ways to get things done, you know, better, safer, more efficient, and oftentimes we push that challenge out to to our partner uh, vendors, and we ask them, you know, this is what we'd like. Can you come up with something to help us? Um, so, I, for for us, you know, we're constantly looking outside the box, trying to figure out a better way to do things. So that that's more prevalent. I will say. There's still plenty of times, like I said earlier, you know, we go to these trade shows to find new technology to help spark new ideas of, of how to do things differently. So it, it goes a little bit both ways, but I'd say for us, it's more prevalent that we're we're the ones that are um, thinking about new ideas and, and trying to develop equipment that will satisfy those those ideas. Yeah, and that's one of the benefits, I think, of the precast show, which is coming up in February in Columbus, Ohio. Um, you not only can talk to vendors and, and, you know, ones that you already work with, maybe reestablish relationships, meet new people, but you can also talk to fellow producers. Um, how do they do it? How, how do they overcome the challenges that they're having? Because I can't tell you how many examples I have of talking to people. You know, one person's, person's in Washington State, one person's in South Carolina, or, you know, one's in upstate New York, one's in greater Los Angeles. And they have the exact same issue, even though they're 3,000 miles apart. And just just that is a benefit of NPCA membership, I think. Oh, absolutely. That's that's 100 percent one of the reasons why I like to go, like why I like to go to the annual convention and committee week. It's that that network of producers. We're all in the same position. We're all dealing with the same challenges. We can learn from each other. We can get better uh, from each other and, and lift the industry as a whole. Um, 
So definitely agree with that. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of secrecy or rivalry when it comes to that. It's it's, it's a very helpful group. I've I've really found it's. So what's out there now? What uh, what what kind of do you expect to be the big investment pieces or, or the the areas for precast to go? It could be you know low carbon. It could be you know smart materials. It could be something. Where do you see five ten? years down the line, maybe that people should start looking at now and sort of seeing how it works for them and their, their business. You mentioned a couple there. I, I think the carbon capture is definitely here. There's a lot of different groups that are pushing for that. So I think that, uh, I think the ones that are able to, to make some inroads with, with capturing carbon, uh, will put themselves in a good position. Um, there's some, there's people already out there, but you know, a couple of other areas I think that are be a lot more prevalent. One is that the whole idea of the Internet of Things, the IoT, the whole idea of, of connecting our equipment and, and getting data out of our equipment. I think that's I think we're on the verge of really seeing more of that. And then kind of jointly with that, the software platforms to help us read and understand to get more efficient. Uh, I, I think those two things are, are really the next areas that we're going to see a push in in the precast side of things. You know, we're, we're very much uh, dependent on our, our frontline people. They're making decisions every day. And, and I think we need to give them more data. We need to give them more information about the equipment, about how the equipment's running from a safety standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint. Um, and then I, I think we need to be able to take that data and actually turn it into something that's usable um, from, a, from a management perspective, um, and from a real-time perspective on the floor. We've been working on, on a couple of those items uh, internally ourselves, and you know, it's, haven't seen a lot that's out there right now that's, that's specific to the precast industry. I think, you, I think you're seeing it in some other manufacturing industries, um, but I think it's coming. It's coming to precast soon. I think it's interesting. I think over the next five years, I think, I think we're going to see a lot of these innovations uh, come to the forefront. I think we've got a lot of smart people in this industry and there's a lot of young people coming in that are bringing new ideas. You know, I've, for me personally, I've kind of said that I feel like the precast industry has been kind of held back a little bit. I feel like it's one of those industries that traditionally has been, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to do it. And I think now, I think in the last decade, you've started to see a transition and you've seen um, a lot more innovative thoughts come into this industry. So it'll be interesting over the next few years to see how that turns. Excellent. Well, hey, Asher, thanks a lot for uh, giving me some of your time today and uh, helpful, helpful insight for our members. You bet. Thanks for having me. Your business is only as strong as the employees that make up your workforce. Building an engaged and knowledgeable team requires constant training and an emphasis on education. NPCA provides the most complete education program in the precast concrete industry. With live webinars, an extensive archive library, and more, you'll find everything you need to keep your team on the cutting edge. Visit precast.org backslash education to learn more about the courses and resources available from NPCA. All right, welcome to the podcast. This is Claude Gauguin, and today I have Bert Ates. He's a regional maintenance manager for Old Castle. And uh, Bert, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what you do now. Well, I started in the business in uh, 1973 at a family-owned business in Dayton, Ohio. I worked my way through the plant. I started as a laborer and worked my way through the plant. 
Uh, eventually ended up as a vice president and officer of the company. I was there for about 35 years until we were bought out and I couldn't come to terms with the new owner, so we parted ways. I, I was always a plant manager of some kind, um, but I've switched over to the maintenance end of it. Just a change of routine, I guess. <laughs> and throughout, even when you were a plant manager, you were doing maintenance. So you've been doing maintenance for quite a while. Oh, for a long time. Yeah. So maintenance is going to be the, the topic we're going to focus on the most. We'll also talk about buying new equipment. But when it comes to precast concrete manufacturing, equipment is pretty vital. And that's equipment, anything going from a batch plant and a mixer system, which can be very, has a lot of components uh, and software and things like that, to things much simpler, like uh, a form that doesn't have any mechanical parts or anything like that, but also but still has moving parts. These uh, pieces of equipment are vital, no matter what you make, they are vital to the production schedule that we're trying to maintain. And nowadays, it seems like everybody's pretty busy and uh, there's some workforce challenges. So a lot of plants are double pouring or they're working longer shifts. So we're really working those pieces of equipment. So with this in mind, Bert, how important is it to have a good maintenance plan? Well, it's, it's essential. With the lead time on parts availability this day and time, uh, you could be down for months waiting on mixer parts, months waiting on hoist parts. If you don't maintain your equipment, it's like your car. If you don't maintain your car, it's, it's not going to do good for you. And the maintenance plan, I would imagine, now, you know, I'm sure your maintenance plan is very robust, but I would imagine that not only does it have to have records in it of what's happened, so basically keeping a record of any issues you've had and any maintenance you've done, but also be proactive in the sense where the program allows you to maybe get some parts or things ahead of time, right? Like what, to you, what's an ideal type of maintenance plan? What's worked for you? Well, you can you can buy hundreds of different maintenance plans. We, we have a specific maintenance plan company-wide. On a daily basis, we get in it. We put in what we did that day, what we repaired, uh, how much time we spent on it, how much the parts cost, if there was any parts. And we kind of track it every day, every month, every quarter. Yeah, so it's very important to just, yeah, keep a record of that. But the other thing is, I would imagine getting over to the workforce side of things, the challenge, is if you have somebody who's devoted just to maintenance, or that's their main job, and you only have that one person, uh, there's a risk there, right? Because let's say that person retires, or they win the lottery, or who knows. Suddenly, you find yourself in a situation where you have nobody ready to step in, right, to to take care of that. What would you advise to companies that might find themselves in that situation where they've got this one person who's stellar at maintenance, but they don't have anybody else right now? Well, that's where you need a, a maintenance manager at. Um, and tra I travel quite a bit. Um, if, if one of the other plants has a problem or the maintenance guy isn't there or they're going to be overwhelmed with a big project, um, I just go to the location and stay as long as I need to to help them out. Right. But cross-training so, yeah, cross so can... cross is a big thing, too. I'm a big believer in cross-training. Um, we have a couple of uh, real good guys here, the assistant plant manager and the plant manager, are hands-on. They'll jump right in and help anywhere they need, um, maintenance, reinforcing, whatever it is. 
So, but you have to have managers have to be on board with maintenance also. Right. I'm so glad you said cross training, finding those people that may, you know, they may not be uh, so mechanically inclined that they could take on the full-time position of maintenance manager, but they know enough to take care of a few things and you get people cross trained, like you said. So you have multiple people in the plant that might be able to pick up on something because it's not only, I would imagine, it's not only what you see on a list, like, okay, this is up for maintenance next week. I've got to grease this, oil this. But it's also knowing by, I don't know, by seeing something, by hearing something in the plant that there might be an issue, right? I mean, what do you use? Well, we can normally, you know, we're here every day. We're in every plant every day. Um, when you walk into a plant and you hear the mixer run, you know if it's changed or not. It's like your car. If your car's making a funny noise, you know something's wrong with it. Uh, the same thing with an overhead crane system. If it squeaks and didn't squeak yesterday and it's squeaking today or it's making a scratching noise or hesitating going up and down or won't hold a load, it's just something's wrong. So you have to keep your eyes open all the time. Eyes and ears, it sounds like, yeah. And so, yeah, uh, listening for those noises and also talking to the employees, I would imagine, because you might hear the noises or you might not, but your employees may hear something or not hear something or and may just not have reported it to you. So it's also important to keep an open line of communication, right, with those that work with the machinery, would you say? Absolutely. They run the material. They run the machines daily. I mean, they run them for six or eight hours a day. Um, they know when something's wrong. We're fortunate enough to have pretty good crane operators and a mixer operator. And when, when they hear an odd noise, we're the first people they call. I mean, hey, something's going on here. It didn't make this noise yesterday. And that happens on occasion. All right. So when it comes to the types of equipment that we would see in a typical precast plant, what would you say is most important to maintain? I mean, it's all important, but what's the uh, what needs the most maintenance, I guess I'll start with? Well, I would say mixers, uh, your batching systems, um, ag conveyors, that plant computer, your moisture probes, and, and then you would go on to your overhead cranes. Um, you know, you can rent fork trucks if you have a major breakdown on the fork truck. Um, you can actually get ready mix. It doesn't do as good a job, a lot more expensive. They're not used to, most plants now are SCC, and they're not used to the SCC concrete. They're used to conventional concrete. Mixers, keeping your probes calibrated, batch plants, Overhead cranes. Um, so, yeah, uh, mixers, uh, you said batch plants, like the hoists, I would imagine, uh, conveyors, aggregate bins, things like that. And so the maintenance program, really, it's almost like when you ask the question in the plant, who's in charge of quality, the answer is supposed to be everybody, right? Even though there's one person that's got a quality control title. Everybody's in charge of quality because at some point you're affecting that quality. I would imagine maintenance is a little bit of the same because there's maintenance that's periodic once a week, once a month, things like that. And then there's maintenance every day, like a mixer, whoever, the batch plant operator. Uh, it's important that they obviously clean the mixer afterwards, things like that, right? I mean, that 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 obviously plays into the, the bigger picture. Well, that's correct. We do daily checklists on all of our cranes and, and the mixer. The mixer operator is responsible for adjusting the paddles in the mixer, keeping them, you know, at the proper distance from the drum. Our hoist operators do a pre-shift inspection where they inspect cables and gears and pulleys and, and things of that nature to make sure end stops and make sure the up and down stops are working. And you're right, it's everybody's responsibility. But you have to have a team. I mean, it has to be a team effort. 
And like I think you said this earlier, I really like the fact that you said the plant management has to be on board. Uh, it almost has to be a culture, right? You know, you can tell when you walk into a plant, there's a culture of safety. There's a culture of quality. There's pride in the product. You almost have to have that same culture of maintenance, you know, where, you know, we've got to take care of these vital pieces of equipment uh, that we use every day, just like we they were our own, right? Just like they were our cars, like you said. Right. But, you know, the plant managers nowadays are responsible for the P&Ls, are responsible for everything. The money has to come from them uh, to buy spare parts to put on the shelf for your vital parts. So they really have to be on board. And most of the time, um, I'm going to say 90, 98% of the time, they are. They don't want to be down. They don't want to lose production days and upset customers. And so, and it's expensive when you have a breakdown. So, um, so in terms of, so you said the mixer, when I asked you about what, what needs the most maintenance. And uh, so in terms of like a vulnerability, what's most vulnerable to breakdown if it isn't maintained correctly, the, would the mixer also, mixer and batch plant also go into that? Well, sure. I mean, most, most plants have a, a computer system, computer operated batch plant, and you can get online service from the, from the manufacturer of the computer if you have a, a computer problem, daily daily calibration of your probes for accurate cementitious material, um, and it affects your strength, it affects your quality. So I, there's just a lot of things that have to be done prior to starting a mixer up. Oil, it has to be clean. What about fork trucks? You know, like a fork, do you, what's your general policy for maintenance on fork trucks? How do you how do you know when it's time to to look them over? Well, we service our fork trucks every 500, approximately every 500 hours. Uh, dump the oil, fuel filter, hydraulic filters, and all of our trucks have uh, hour meters on them. So we know exactly when to change them, when to change oil, and when, when, in the, when the service is due. We grease some of the parts on the fork trucks daily, tilt cylinders and things of that nature that, that really suffer a lot of abuse. Uh, and the operator's responsible for that. During times now, during times like like these, or times when we're busy, uh, it can be it can be a little challenging to find the time to do that type of maintenance that takes longer time. Like you got to shut down the plant. Some people rely on the winters uh, to do that. When things slow down, business slows down. They take a week or you know a few days, and they they perform maintenance. But with a mild winter or a busy construction uh, industry those times can be challenging to find. So what would you recommend? I mean, what do you guys do to try to find that time to perform equipment maintenance during those busier parts of the year? Well, we actually service our, our plant. We grease our plant once a month and we inspect all the equipment at the same time. We inspect it for wear, cracks. We'll go through 25 or 30 tubes of grease, greasing the plant. It has to be done on a Saturday when, when there's nothing running. Um, lockout tagout's a big issue, so it's a lot easier to perform lockout tagout when the plant's not running. Wintertime projects normally um, are replacement projects or something that you know needs to be rebuilt, and it's, that's a scheduled, that's a scheduled repair. Whether it's a week or a month, it, normally it's not a month. But you put in a new mixer, it might be a little time-consuming, but. Uh, but the wintertime, normally that's, that stuff is scheduled. Right, and you have time to plan around that, I suppose. It's not like a sudden... Uh, well, sometimes I guess you can suddenly have something break down, you have to replace it. But most times those things are, like you said, scheduled and um, you can work around it. Right, like like if we were going to reline our ag bins, we would schedule that for uh, the slowest time of the year because that's going to take a couple weeks to do and you're not going to be able to produce when you're doing that. 
So one question a lot of members must ask themselves at one time or another, plant managers, maintenance managers, is assessing whether do I fix this or do I replace it? All right, you get to that point where you got you got to make a decision. You know, do we keep putting, do we keep adding parts to this and putting band-aids on it or do we replace it? What, what factors go into that for you? Well, that's totally up to the... Uh... To be honest, it's totally up to the plant manager whether he's he wants to spend that kind of money. But you, you know, if you keep accurate records, you know how much money you spend on that piece of equipment through the year, how old it is. Um, with today's technology, sometimes it's cheaper just to buy a new one because you're going to save it in material and labor, just because of the technology out there. Right. So that's where that record keeping comes back in. Unless you know what you've been spending on fixing this piece of machinery for the last five, six, ten years. It's hard for you to, you know, you can look back and say, oh, my God, if I would have just replaced this five years ago, I would have paid it off by now just for just adding together what it's cost me to repair it and the additional labor uh, that goes along with it. Well, not to mention the downtime. So and, and parts availability is is horrendous right now. You just can't for some a lot of this specialty stuff. It's it's eight, 10, 12 weeks to get these parts. Yeah, I've heard I've heard some stories about lead times. Uh, it's been crazy. Here's a question that just uh, occurred to me. So, you know, like a car, when you buy a car, you can get a warranty or usually you get a warranty uh, and you can buy an extended warranty. And how does that work in the world of precast equipment? This is something I'm not familiar with. But, you know, when you're buying a batch plant or even a, a new form or a fork truck, um, do they is it kind of the same thing where you can you have the standard warranty, you can get extended or how does that work? Well, it all depends on what kind of piece of equipment it is, and normally it's 30 to 90 days, and it all depends on who puts it in. Some people won't warranty the stuff unless you pay them to put it in. So they say, oh, we had no control over that installation, so we don't know really what happened to that piece of equipment. So it's kind of, um, do we do it or do we pay them to do it? So, that, yeah, that's got to that's gotta factor in because, yeah, if you do it yourself, you're sort of nullifying the warranty that would come with it. But it's not, doesn't sound like a lot of that equipment has like five-year warranty or anything like that. No, no, no. I, I haven't seen anything like that. Um, you might you might get a year on a hoist or something, uh, an overhead crane system. But if they're going to break, they're going to break after that warranty's over anyway. So when it comes to buying new equipment, like buying a new hoist or a, a, a gantry crane or a, a new mixer system, what are the things that, that come into consideration then? I mean, there's the obvious, the cost. Uh, you know, you're doing an analysis and you've determined, yes, I do need a new piece of equipment. Um, now I got to go shopping. There's a few companies. There's some here. There's some in, in Europe. What are the, the factors that come into play for you? Well, how old the piece of equipment is and, and how much trouble we've had with it. And it's getting the money allocated also. But that's, that, that's completely up to the plant manager. I mean... Um, you know, all, all we can do is suggest and say, hey, you know, this thing isn't going to last much longer. Sit down and talk about it. It's a long, drawn-out process. Yeah, because sometimes it's not just even buying a piece of equipment because the other one is that we currently have is uh, worn out. It could be because we're trying to address the challenges we have with workforce. So sometimes we can get a piece of equipment in like those new rebar assembly machines that pull rebar in like off a spool and they bend it and cut it to whatever shape you want, and it's right there. I mean, you can cut quite a few hours of labor with that piece of machinery, but that piece of machinery, I'm sure, is, is very, very expensive. No, when you buy something new like that, that you're not really familiar with, like this is a brand new piece of equipment, 
or one of those CNC machines that they use to cut out uh, styrofoam or things like that. When you're buying something that you're not that familiar with, how do you make sure you're able to address any issues down the road? Well, you have to put a pen and paper to it first. Um, there's another big factor into the new rebar machines is waste. There is zero waste. And as everybody knows, steel is very, very expensive. And, and it's based on production also. Uh, is your production increasing? You know, uh, are we going to be able to pay for this in three years? With the extra savings in labor and material, which is a big thing, is material. Are we going to be able to pay for this for, in three years? I'm glad you brought that up about the waste, because that is a really good point. Yeah, the, the zero waste on steel, not cheap. Now, a lot of this, these new pieces of equipment come with, uh, they're, not like the pieces, they're not like the pieces of equipment from 40, uh, 30, 40 years ago. These, a lot of them come with software programs and things like that and when those go down it's not like you can just call your local geek squad uh, to come fix it these are very specialized pieces of software when that happens to you guys i i assume you just you have to you have no other recourse really but to, to call the supplier and, and they can fix it 90 percent of the time you're correct uh the supplier has the, the program he has all the, the wiring diagrams uh, he knows exactly what to put back in there uh, your plant may be a little different than someone else's, so your program might be a little different. And it's very expensive. I mean, and the plant could be down for weeks on this parts, or that piece of equipment could be down for weeks. Now, so to, in order to prevent that, that long downtime, are there things that you can, like, are there things that you've done, like, do you stock up on, on a certain piece that either has to do with this high-end equipment or even the other type of equipment? You stock up on pieces that you know eventually. It'd be like buying extra tires for the forklift, but uh, when it comes to these uh, these pieces of equipment that have software, things like that, do you buy, do you kind of keep uh, some stock in, in at the at the plant? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, if we have a piece of equipment that breaks down twice in a year with the same problem, we'll start putting parts on the shelf. It all depends on how hard the parts are to get. We'll start putting parts on the shelf. Because we know it's happened twice, it's going to happen again, and we can't fight, can't figure out why. It's just wear and tear. Those parts you have to, you have to stock. And as far as these software issues on some of this equipment, can they somehow, can they fix some of that or diagnose some of that remotely? Uh, I, I would imagine sometimes they can. Uh, your mixer system, yes. Um, benders, um, perhaps, but you know you have to have a dial up. Um, I haven't personally seen anything other than, than mixer computers that, that the factory can log into. I, I'm sure they're out there somewhere. I haven't seen any. Well, at the end of the day, it sounds like it's, it's very important. I, I guess also it's very important to um, when you're buying this equipment that if you're buying it used versus new, which I know a lot of people will, will opt to buy used equipment, which is going to be cheaper, but... The drawbacks from that obviously are, are age, like you said, but what if that company that made that is no longer in business and you have to fix something? What do you what do you resort to in those cases? Well, it all depends on what kind of part it is. If it's a metal part, uh, we'll take the old part out and take it to a machine shop and have one made. Software and things like that, computer screens, uh, somebody out there has got something that'll work. It's just going to take a lot of research. But it's things that have to be thought about up front. And I guess is, you know, if, if you're buying a used piece of machinery, you know that you don't have that company support, then that you do have those resources, like a welding shop down the road, a machine shop, 
somebody you can go to in case you need a part, right? Right. There's times where you run into the problem of you've just got an old piece of equipment. The manufacturer's still in business. They're more than willing and happy to sell you a new piece of equipment, but they just don't make that part anymore. They have quit making it. It's obsolete. Uh, and we ran into that a couple of times, and that's when we grab the part and run to the machine shop and say, hey, can you make this? But that can get very expensive, too, but it's better than you know the downtime. Now, talking about pieces of equipment, we've talked about Mitcher, batch plant, fork truck. What about things like the air compressor? I know the air compressor is very, very vital for a few different functions, whether it's uh, stripping products or, or other things. But what's been your experience in terms of air compressors, which types seem to work best, and anything on maintenance? Well, I prefer a, a screw-type air compressor. The piston-type air compressors are just about a thing of the past. They build air on demand. Um, they will idle down. The compressor does not run all the time. It's just at an idle. Um, you can actually hear the motor shut down. But, you know, the other thing with air compressors is that 90% of the plants have an auxiliary hose run outside. And if your air compressor goes down, you go down to the rental place, plug your air compressor in, you're back up and running. So I, it is a vital part, but it's a part uh, that you can substitute rather quickly and, and get yourself back up and running. We service our air compressors every three months. We're on a routine. Uh, they just call us and say, we'll be there next week. Come in and service it and... Voila, they bring a compressor with them, as a matter of fact, and plug it into the system so we don't lose air during, during the service. Well, lots of, uh, lots of great advice uh, from, uh, obviously, years of experience. and uh, So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. But it sounds like when you sum it all up, it's important to have a good, robust maintenance system that the plant management and everybody ownership, everybody's on board with, they're committed to it, committed to always keeping it up, record-keeping huge you know using that maintenance system to stay on schedule but also just keep a record right of of the costs and the amount of times that you have to fix something absolutely but you know keeping records doesn't mean anything if somebody's not looking at them i try to go in once a month and look at it and, and look at all the plants and maintenance is a big cost it's a big cost of the of the plant but it's cost of doing business right it is the cost of doing business well, with that, uh, I will thank you very much, Bert, for joining us. This has been great. Uh, we'd love having you on board. That's it for today. Thanks. Thanks, Claude. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Breaking the Mold. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. You also can help us extend our reach by sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. Until next time, this is Joe Frollo. Thanks for joining us.